Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. Welcome to a special early edition of This Week in Tech as we focus on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and what that means to the tech industry and what that could mean for banks nationwide. Complicating matters even further, Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the only one that failed over the weekend. New York-based Signature Bank, as well as another bank called Silvergate Capital, failed last week as well. In an effort to understand what is a complex, confusing, and fast-moving situation that could have repercussions for months or even years to come, we talked to Kent State University finance professor David Peleg. We caught up with David between classes yesterday, Monday, March 13th, just as he was getting ready to deliver a lecture on this topic to his students. Basically, you have a classic banking run, and the trigger for this banking run was not some malfeasance or subprime loans or Bitcoin and funny games. This was simply... U.S. government bonds that had gone down in price because the Fed has raised rates. And so uh, what happens is uh, when you buy a government bond and it yield, you know it gives you one and a half percent interest rate when you buy it, if interest rates then go to 4%, right, that bond is not worth what you paid for it. So say you paid $100 for it. Well, now that bond's going to be worth less, going to be worth 95 cents, 92 cents, right? And now accounting rules will allow you to hold that bond. If you held it for 30 years, then you'd never have to take the loss. But if you sell it, then you got to recognize a loss. And they were a little bit short of money. So they sold some U.S. government bonds and they had to recognize $2 billion of losses. Well, $2 billion loss is a lot for a bank. And then everyone else did the math in their head. They're like, wait a second. If that was two billion, you own another hundred billion, which they did roughly a little under a hundred billion. Your losses are that you haven't recognized. Oh, your bank is essentially insolvent. And so, as of Thursday, Friday, people realize it and they tweeted about it. And you, it is a one like if you know, you know, if you have a calculator in your hand, you could, I could calculate it sitting here in in Kent, Ohio, in one second, right? So you can imagine if you had computers and you're on Wall Street or you're at a big company. And so 42 billion of their depositors pulled their money out on Friday, making them effectively out of business, right? But here's the thing, like with a bank run, if you have money in a bank account and the bank fails and you have more than $250,000, because the federal government guarantees every depositor up to 250,000. So retail, you're fine. At this bank, at Silicon Valley Bank, only about 7% of their depositors were retail. Most were companies, right? So if you're a company and you have 10 million in there to make your payroll next week, and then it's not there. You could be facing a layoff, bankruptcies, and all weekend long, people were thinking about the what ifs. There were some pretty big depositors, for example, Roku, I think, had 500 million there. Roblox had money there. I know two people whose employers had their cash there. And so basically those employers would face a mass layoff or prospect closing their doors because even though you're going to get half of your money now, it may take months or years to get the rest of your money and you might not get it all. And so 
I think the Fed and the FDIC and the and the Treasury, they sat down and they said, wow, we're going to have a huge banking crisis here. And they decided to effectively bail out all of the depositors at a Silicon Valley Bank and also Signature Bank, which is another bank unrelated to SVB, who also closed. And there's a third bank, uh, Republic National Bank, which I'm not, I haven't, there's some word about them, but they said they're okay, but maybe there are people in line. I don't know what's going to happen with them. But basically the Fed announced, Fed and the Treasury announced a new facility, an acronym facility, or, or the facility has an acronym, which is BTFP. And that facility will allow any bank to take some of their treasury bonds that may be worth 95 cents or 90 cents on the dollar and borrow 100 cents on the dollar against them for up to a one-year term, i.e. if they need to raise funds from their treasuries, they don't need to sell them and take the hit. They can effectively sell them to the Fed and the Fed will print money and lend it to them up to a year. Okay, here's my question Uh about SVB and the treasuries that they were holding, right? Mm -hmm. So if it was me, and for example, I have my personal IRA, and it's been losing a whole lot of money over the past couple of years, as everybody's IRAs have. Mm -hmm. Well, I tried to hedge my bets by not keeping everything in stocks by, I have a couple of different mutual funds and one has more stocks and one has more bonds. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of every now and then would invest a little in one, a little the other, try to hedge my bets. And so I didn't keep all my money in the treasuries. I mean, I know that they're pretty safe and they're pretty vanilla and I'm okay with them being long-term. So to my untrained ear, it sounds like these guys at SVB were just kind of irresponsible putting all their eggs in one basket. Is that wrong of me to think that? It's not It's not entirely wrong. They went without a chief risk officer for nine months last year. And the chief risk officer would be the person who said, hey, we have a lot of these long dated treasuries. And I know the U.S. Treasury securities are the, the safest from a default perspective in the earth, the safest you can have. But you know, we've got a lot of interest rate exposure at a very low interest rate. And if the Fed is raising rates, maybe we should hedge some of that risk. And they certainly had not hedged enough of it. And however, it is sort of crazy that a bank gets put out of business from their treasury holdings which is like, it's not subprime, it's not lending against snowmobiles, you know, it's not some crazy scheme or investment. This is like the safest asset from a default perspective (laughs) on planet Earth. So it's really sort of strange. But, and here's the scary part, Gene, the scary part is that they're not the only one. Like most of the US banking system is in the same position where they have a lot of U.S. treasuries that they need to hold for regulatory reasons, right? They may not, especially the smaller banks wouldn't even think to hedge them, right? And so a lot of the smaller banks are in trouble. Here's another thing which has come out. When you put your money at the bank, if you have money at the bank, what interest do you think you get at the bank on the money you sitting that's sitting in your checking account? Well, on checking, I'm getting probably 1% or less. I mean, I'm not getting anything on checking. I'm not getting a whole lot on savings. But the reason why I keep money 
liquid in savings is because I don't want everything tied up in the stock market because I've got the FDIC insurance. Now, here's the thing with these guys, like you said, instead of it just being insured up to $250,000, I mean, the federal government went in and said, okay, we're going to make sure everybody is made whole. But they hastened to say that it wasn't with taxpayer dollars. They were just essentially going to bill all the other banks in the system and say, you got to put in money to cover these guys' loss, right? In the FDIC, right? Which probably if I'm at another bank, I'm a little bit on the ticked off side this morning, right? Well, yeah. Well, here's the thing. So a bank makes money by having you have your cash in your checking account and they pay you a very low interest. Very low. The average is like half of a percent. Right. And then they lend the money out by buying treasuries or by lending, you know, to mortgages or, you know, or or various loans. They make loans at a higher interest rate and they make a, a an interest margin from that. The higher the spread between deposits and loans, the more money they make. That's how they stay in business. Here's the problem. Right now they pay a half percent. And two years ago they paid a half percent. And two years ago, interest rates were zero. So a money market fund paid about a half percent. Well, today, a money market fund pays 4% or 4.5%. So every corporate treasurer is waking up this morning saying, wait a second, why do we have our cash sitting there making a half percent and we're risking that the bank could fail? Why don't we just buy treasury bills, short-term treasuries, or put it in a money market fund and earn 4% with the same kind of risk or even less risk? And so... Therefore, there's going to be a lot of people reducing their money in the banks. So there's the question is, will there be some sort of system-wide run? Because most banks are in a similar position. Well, at least the small and medium-sized ones could be in a similar position. We don't know. Every bank's different. But if you're a CFO, you're certainly not a bank expert, and you don't want to lose your payroll. So you might want to go something safer. So, for example, U.S. Treasuries, the short-term, the two-year, so two year, like the shorter the treasury, the less interest rate it has because risk it has because it's shorter, you know, there's less time. So the two year treasuries were a 1% lower interest as of today. Like people are buying them like crazy and they're taking that money out of the banking system to buy those treasuries. Well, and then, and then here's the other crazy thing. We've got these nut bars in Congress right now that are talking about not raising the debt ceiling. At which point the U.S. could default on its obligations, which would make the treasuries what worthless. Uh, yes, but they would never. the uh, The debt ceiling is really a more of a political game, right? It's a everyone knows we're going to lift the debt ceiling. There's no way that we couldn't lift the debt ceiling. However, a lot of you know representatives, senators, and congresspeople they use this negotiation to get votes for their pet projects. And so there's a lot of standoffs and people use this as a way to get votes or sell votes. Or So it's a politically, and there's no conceivable way that they would not pass the debt ceiling. Although, you know, the negotiations could get tense and, you know, see who has the weakest hand, you know, which Senator has the strongest or weakest hand, right. To get what they want. So. That, but were they to do that? Oh yeah. That I would mean, be very why, bad. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. End of the world. End of the world. End of the dollar. Beginning of the Bitcoin. Ah, well, uh, I saw today, too, speaking of Bitcoin, that there was another bank that was in trouble that was more based on crypto. 
Oh, so there's a digital currency called a stablecoin, which we've discussed before. Like one of the problems with Bitcoin and Ethereum is that the value can be, you know, can fluctuate wildly, right? And so it's hard to do commerce when your money does not have a stable value. And so one solution people came up with was to create a stable coin, which is you'd have a token and every token had a dollar on deposit backing that token. So therefore, even though it's a digital token and I would transfer value to you by giving you my token, our tokens, we could always turn around and and convert them into US dollars on a one-to-one basis. So that's a stable coin. Now, one of the biggest ones, USDC, is run by a company called Circle. Circle had $3 billion of those reserves at Silicon Valley Bank. Aha. Uh-huh. So over so the weekend, now theirs is worthless, right? It was going to work. It was a dollar and then it was down to 70 cents. But then when the bailout was announced, it went back to a dollar. Okay. Although I so, can't, it, this is not good for stable coins long run. So why is it that this one bank in Silicon Valley had so many investors and customers from that one industry. I mean, I work in like, for example, the media industry or the radio industry. I've never heard that there's a particular bank that favors the industry that I'm in in particular. Why was it such a, I don't want to call it incestuous, but why was it such a small, tiny circle that was like related to that one trade group? So two reasons. One is, you know, their location is in, a tech hub. And so they made a lot of loans to startups and ventures and tech businesses. And in return for the loans, one of the conditions of the loan is we're going to lend you this money, but you have to use our bank as your checking account, right? That is one of the terms of the loan. So they were a big lender in that, in that area, but because they were more concentrated with corporates, they didn't have a huge branch network. Like for example, you know, Huntington or Kansas City, they have branches everywhere. So they get a lot of depositors from, you know, just retail, depo- you know, people with their, put their paychecks in there, right? But Silicon Valley did not have a lot of retail depositors. Now, retail depositors are probably stickier money than corporates that have large accounts and they're run by professionals who read Twitter <laughs> and see that Peter Thiel, you know, one of the world's most famous venture capital investors told all his companies to pull their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. And then when you see that, you have to get your money up. So their concentration was because of their location in Silicon Valley and their book of loans and their customers were, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're a successful bank, your biggest customers will be tech companies just by, you know, location. Okay. Well, here's Um, another couple of interesting factoids related to this that I think bear watching and want to get your comment on it. One, I believe it was the CEO, like just a few days ago, sold like $3.6 million worth of stock. And then the company crashed. And then two, on Friday, just hours before the bank crashed, they gave all their guys, their yearly bonuses. I mean, they had to know it was coming. So essentially like all the top guys in there cashed out and left everybody else holding the bag. Beside the fact that that seems grossly unfair, isn't that illegal? Uh, It seems like, I'm sure it probably is not, doesn't smell legal, but that will be many lawsuits will be minted on along those lines, right? Because just remember, for, for a lot of people, your biggest risk 
from the courts may not be that prosecutors trying to trying to throw you in jail. It could be investors or investor groups suing you to get all your money for taking the money. Their lawyers are going to be really busy. They just cancel all their vacations. Huh. You know, and, and what that brings to mind locally, just kind of as an aside, is there was a story today in Cleveland.com about the the first energy and the Larry Householder and the House Bill 6, right? And so Householder right. and Borges just got convicted. And they were convicted for taking $61 million worth of bribes. And everybody knows that the money came from first energy, but nobody over there has gotten charged with anything. But there's this big shareholder lawsuit, right? And right. as part of the lawsuit, one of the big hubbubs like a couple of months ago is the federal judge who's headquartered you know, here in Akron. He was saying to these guys, well, how come none of those people had to pay the money back that they got? They got all these big bonuses, right? And then they got fired uh, because of these you know, alleged bribes. And he was saying, well, wait a minute. And that's what the shareholders were saying. Like, well, well, wait a minute. Like we took all these losses and they got these bonuses. So it's kind kind of like that, right? Correct. Except the 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 class action, the, the shareholder lawsuits will go against the company because I, I don't well, they I, I don't know if they can sue the actual individuals as individuals because it's a corporate because of the right, corporate right. structure. So but I'm sure. Yeah, that, that was one of the problems also with the subprime debacle. Like nobody at the banks who were making the loans, no one senior faced any criminal or even civil liability. Uh, and so there were some, you know, some people, some smaller fry, you know, face civil liability locally, but uh, by and large, people escape prosecution. So that also sends, you know, a signal to the marketplace. Hmm. So that it's a very... It's a suit. I, I don't know how the regulators handle it because on the one hand, you want to be tough, but then may risk a depression. On the other hand, if you keep, if you don't shut things down now, then does it just give people the license to take more risk, you know, than they should? Like, you know how some of the best restaurants in Cleveland and Heinen's downtown are in old bank buildings, right? Right. So back in the day, you had to trust your bank. And so the banks built these branches that were all marble and stone and looked really solid. But now they just build these things, you know, you just, they just build them off the highway next to the McDonald's and the Chipotle. And they don't really need to spend any money because people don't really have to worry about their banks as much. And so now. Until today. Until today. Except <laughs> as it turns out, they right? didn't have to worry. Okay. Well, what was interesting to me about today is the federal government made this big exception. They said, I mean, the, the FDIC goes up to $250,000 and then after that you're on your own. But instead today they said, no, they're going to make everybody whole except for then the investors and the shareholders and the company's management and stuff, which was good because, you know, they don't get a big golden parachute for perhaps operating it in a risky manner, right? Uh, they'll do okay. They'll do okay. But the thing is, again, they failed because of treasuries. So this is not FT. Remember, the, we talked about the FTX story, which is all filled with intrigue and crazy stuff, or subprime, you know, where they're lending, you know, there's a whole racket to lend uh, and on these houses and do these crazy securities, right? In this case, they 
didn't really hedge their U.S. treasuries, which is a weird, it's a really weird thing. Well, but again, I go back to if you hold on to those treasuries, they're going to be worth what they're supposed to be worth. It's Correct. just that they had too much invested in in that one basket. So uh, to me, again, it looks like a management issue. It's like if you hadn't had 99% of what you had in that one basket, you could have just ridden out the storm, right? Or not? I mean, am I wrong? Well, it's the key is it's not just the one basket. It's that because of the accounting rules, they were able to not have to recognize some of the losses that they had taken Hmm. until they were, you know, there was some people who were pulling their money out. And what they did is they were trying to raise some more capital. And of course, when they tried to raise more capital, they had to approach the market and and show them the current, their current balance sheet and holdings and statistics. And the market didn't like that. So they, that capital raising failed. They were trying to raise more equity capital, right? And once it failed, everyone who was in, who got to see inside, you know, the book, realized that there were a lot of losses and the bank is probably effectively insolvent and the information traveled so quickly and the depositors were so concentrated that the bank run happened fast. I mean, that was $42 billion in a day. Now, is it, is it malfeasance of the people running it? It's, this is not like, a, again, this is not an FTX. The stories are going to be not as interesting because did they, they didn't learn about duration. And duration is, by the way, a term that is used to describe interest rate risk. And so they hadn't had their duration, which they probably should have done. But well, it's, really, yeah. it's a weird one. It's a really weird one. And as you're describing this to me, again, you're the expert. I'm not. But I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying. And all I'm thinking to myself is, well, but they made a bunch of mistakes so that when they had to, you know, essentially lift the veil when they went out looking for more money, it'd be just like if I went to, a bank and said, you know, I need a car loan. And they'd be, well, what are you going to base that on? And I'm like, right. well, my house. And then they said, well, do you actually own your house? And it'd be like, well, no, <laughs> you know, I'm right. renting or something like that. You know what right. I mean? And so to me saying, oh, it was because of the treasuries begs the question. It's like, well, yeah, they had a lot of treasuries, but they had obviously the foundations were made of sand. You know, yes, and to me, that doesn't say that it was the treasuries that was the issue. It was the management that was the issue. Yeah, that's a really good point, because like and this is happening in a lot of companies today. The management is folk are focusing on issues that have nothing to do with their core business. Their core business is getting money from depositors and lending it out to borrowers. Right. And if you have such different priorities in life than doing that. If you go for almost a year without a chief risk officer with a, you know, over a hundred billion of assets, that is like, what are you doing? You're right. So it is, it is a classic mismanagement thing. The question is, of course, there's two banks, possibly three that are now closed over the weekend. Are there more? That's the question. So, yeah, the question to me is, is it bad management isolated to a few, you know, bad eggs, which I think is what the federal government is trying to spin right now. You yes. know, no, no, no. Do not look behind this. Curtain. <laughs> no, this yeah. is just it's a few totally people. Good. It's isolated incident. It's contained. Um, and and the here. question to me is, it's like the teenagers that say, but dad, everybody's doing it. 
You know, was everybody doing it? And if so, that's bad for the rest of us, right? Yes. I mean, here's the key. We have a lot of inflation now. It's hurting everybody because wages haven't kept up with inflation. Anyone who's bought a hamburger or coffee or food knows what I'm talking about. Okay, so we have inflation and the Fed is, believes that if they raise interest rates, that should mute the inflation, right? So the problem is interest rates were zero, close to zero, and the banks bought these government bonds and they made their loans and they made some loans at you know 1% or 1.5%. And so the Fed has been raising rates to try to get ahead of inflation. They aren't quite there yet, right? They still believed that they needed to raise rates more, but because they've raised the rates, all of these banks now are sitting on loans that have dropped in value. And a lot of banks, especially the small and medium-sized ones, could be effectively insolvent if you mark them all at the market. If they had to sell them today, they may all be out of business. That's the question. So what does the Fed do? Do they keep raising rates to fight inflation? I don't think so, because you can't be bailing out the banking system and continue to raise rates, because that's sort of it's going again, you know, the two things are contradictory. Hmm. So is the Fed going to lower rates now so that the banks can get their solvency back? I don't know. That's the so question. So they're going to lower rates and potentially put all the rest of us at risk of having higher inflation because, in my mind, and again, I'm no expert, these yahoos that are running the banks were not right. minding the store and they were essentially doing bad practices. So we're all going to pay for their mistakes, which again is a little guy paying for what the big guys do when we put our money in it. And this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be the safe money. This isn't even the risky money that we're playing on the stock market. Correct. But think about it. We're paying the price when we buy, you know, a hamburger or buy some, you know, some oats, right? That inflation is hitting everybody. Sure. And that inflation is a product some people may say is a product of too low interest rates, too easy money for so long. And so we're paying the price, not just, you know, on our deposits or investments, we're paying the prices, you know, we buy energy and food and clothing and shelter. Well, so then it would be better if the Fed raised the interest rates on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's like if all the banks failed and that's bad. So, you know, is there a fix for this? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Bitcoin, you know, a lot of people are buying Bitcoin because the thing is the U.S. dollar is the same as the British pound, the same as the euro, same as the Japanese yen, right? They're all sort of free floating currencies. They're all, all the countries have a lot of debt. And so people are like, well, maybe I'll buy some Bitcoin or maybe I'll buy some gold. Huh. I think it, it's good. You know, this could maybe Bitcoin, could, but who knows? I don't know. Or a lot, I don't know. Who knows? Bitcoin's a tough one. The final question before we wrap up, I saw this other interesting side note today that said that at the same time as all this was happening, that there was a lot of short selling going on with regard to some of the smaller regional banks. And oh, yeah. I don't really want to go down the list, but it was like all the banks in this area. <laughs> and I was yes. like, that sounds bad. I didn't really understand why it was bad, but it sounded bad to me. Can you explain yeah, basically, if these banks are all going to lose deposits, these banks are all going to have to pay a higher interest rate to their depositors in order to attract deposits, which hurts their margin and their profitability, which hurts their stocks. In addition, 
every CFO has got to be thinking of, you know, of a company or a treasurer of a company. It's got to be thinking, boy, I want, you know, JP Morgan is a lot bigger and seems safer than my local bank. Mm, I wonder if I should get some of my cash out of there. So they're going to lose deposits. They're going to have to increase the interest they pay. They're going to have to sell assets. They're going to have to sell off some of their loans and some of their treasuries to shrink their balance sheets. So that's why I think people are selling the banks. Wow. So how do people make money on short selling? Yeah, simple. When you buy a stock, right, you want to buy it low and then sell it high. So, but you do the order of buy first, sell later. Well, in a short sell, you sell first and then you buy later. So if you told me that you really would love a pair of a certain type of tennis shoe and you'd pay me $1,000 for that, You're, you want it so bad you pay $1,000. And I'd say, okay, 1000 I sell it to you, right? And I have two days to find one. Then I run around and try to get one for $500 to make a profit. I have the risk, of course, it may be that this shoe becomes super collectible and it costs me $1,500 to buy it to, so I can deliver it to you. But basically, all I've done is I've sold first and I'm going to buy it later. Okay. So this report that people were short selling kind of the local banks or the not necessarily local, but regional banks, and they're all really big names and every single one of them are in our area. Could that mean something bad for those banks then? I think it's just this: the short selling isn't what's putting the price down. I think what I just said with the pressure on them to increase the interest they pay They're going to lose some of their deposits. They may have to sell some of their assets and recognize losses. And so that, that situation is bad for them. The actual, if the short selling isn't, isn't making it happen because say I owned one of these banks, right. And I owned a million shares. Well, I could sell half of my shares this morning. Right. Or I could borrow someone else's shares and sell those two as a short seller. Either way, people are going to be selling the shares. So it's not the short sellers. Okay. So if you had advice then for your average listener who's listening to this going, this is complicated and it sounds scary. What should I do? What would your advice be? Okay. So if you have more than $250,000 in your bank account, have a bank account in more than one bank. In fact, there was a story about one of the best NBA basketball players is this guy, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's also one of the smartest. Every time he has $250,000 in the bank, he opens up another bank account. I read that he has like 50 different bank accounts or 50 different banks. So make sure you don't have more than $250,000 in any one bank. And by the way, if I have 10 accounts, it's still at $250,000 for all 10. So you'd have to open account at other banks. So number one, always do that. Take advantage of the FDIC insurance. It's not that hard to open a bank account, right? So number one, that's what you should do. Number two, pay attention to what happens this week, what the government's going to do, what banks do, what the stock market does. It should be interesting and you'll learn something. And it's a little bit of entertainment, more entertaining than normal. Number three, you should consider looking at, you know, I I, I think still think it'd be nice to own some Bitcoin, although it's very speculative. And you should expect, if you it's a very speculative bet. If you put money in Bitcoin, you could easily lose it all or you'll easily guaranteed lose 50% at some point. So from a very long-term perspective, there's got to be some alternatives in your portfolio. Okay. That's my advice. I don't know. I wish I knew. You should either be buying stocks like crazy day or selling them. (laughs) 
one of the two. <laughs> well, and, and I guess I guess your chances are 50-50, you'll be right, right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> okay. Correct. Well, thanks so much for taking time with me today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for talking. Happy to talk. All right. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye-bye. That was Kent State University finance professor David Pellig. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5 1590 WAKR and WAKR.net.